Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak with top industry leaders in the data space. We hear their stories, their successes, their failures, and how they got to where they are today. The podcast is designed to help you take your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're speaking with Nufar Gaspar. She is the Data Science Vertical Manager, Intel Corporation. If you have ever wondered how to rise through the ranks in an organization, and definitely in a large organization, and if you thought that maybe you need to move companies often in order to get into new places and that that's going to help create change when the new places where you go, if you ever thought anything like that, then this is the episode for you. Nufar has been about nine years at Intel after spending some time in research and in academia. And her career at Intel has been amazing. She's done so, so well, created so much change, started teams and areas from scratch that then she passed on to other people. So she would go and start the new one. The episode is filled with lessons that I think will help so much of the audience. Will This will help you see what are the other options out there, how you can make change in a large organization with data science. And that takes time and perseverance and trying different avenues. And she's done an amazing job. And during that time, she's had a couple of kids. So amazing. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, here is the discussion with Nufar. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Nufar. Nufar, thank you so much for being on the show. I am so excited to be speaking with you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. I wanted to uh, start the interview by asking you, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that drew you into the area? So I was uh, working on my uh, master's in industrial engineering. I was uh, focusing very much on uh, optimization and statistics. My actual dissertation was around scheduling problems. So it was a very theoretical domain, one that you'll usually find in uh, computer science, where I was doing an NP hard proofs and uh, various algorithms, a very uh, academic oriented uh, kind of master's, which should I chose to go for a career in uh, academia? this would have been a perfect start. But at one point when I was about to decide whether I want to go for a PhD, I was saying, well, I don't really care about solving theoretical problems. When I go and say what kind of real problems they will solve, I, I end up kind of in inventing something just so the paper will be interesting enough. And yes. I realized that the passion for solving real world problem is really burning. And I was always saying that should I ever go back for a PhD, it will only be when I have a brilliant idea of real world problem that I want to solve in a very deep way. And I haven't gotten there yet. So I was about to graduate my master, still working on various uh, things, not looking for a job, when a very good friend of mine from school called up and said, hey, I'm working in a very cool group uh, in Intel. We uh, are called Advanced BI. This is what they were called a while back. And I think you should come and interview for us because I think it's, it will be a good fit. And back in the day, I didn't even realize that I want a data position. I was looking into various uh, strategic analysts or any other things that my background would fit. And I was going to interview and they were kind of persuade me that though they are now working on various BI solutions, they are now going into the space of machine learning and predictive. They, they just released their very first predictive solution to production. It was eight and a half years ago or so. And they say, come and join us. It was a group of about 30 guys back in the days. And I said, well, okay, I'll join you. And I've been there ever since and grew with the organization. So looking back, it was a perfect match for me because I'm very passionate about knowledge and about learning and about problem solving and doing all of that in an analytical way. And for me, machine learning, and now we call it AI, is a perfect match for all of my passions. And I'm very, very happy that uh, I went down this uh, path because for me, it's uh, where my passion and my aspirations meet whatever is currently happening in the world. These days, uh, we're almost 200 people and we work, we're now called Advanced Analytics, by the way. We shifted the name over the years. We work in, in seven different verticals across Intel and in areas like sales, manufacturing, product development, uh, essentially everything that is uh, very critical for Intel to become more, much more successful. And each of these verticals is highly focused on transforming the way the business is being done in the domain that it uh, works for using AI. 
So we, each of us is very much focused on bringing a transformation to Intel using these uh, capabilities. This day, I lead the vertical that is very much focused on uh, designing Intel CPU and verifying them. And I got there in a very gradual way. It wasn't in the size and in the shape that it currently is. But why don't I uh, tell you how I got started? I think it uh, will be interesting to understand how you grew such a vertical or an internal startup inside a huge corporate like Intel. Yeah, that would be great. So uh, when I first started, I worked in a data analyst or in some aspects, a data scientist uh, in a specific project. Back in the day, it was still working with a design organization, the organization that builds Intel uh, CPU. And when I just started, I was doing kind of everything. First, the data analysis, then the algorithmic aspect, a lot of R and SQL. And, and I really enjoyed it because I got to learn, first of all, to transition from just optimization and statistics into learning machine learning. And for me, it was a very natural transition because essentially behind every machine learning algorithm, there is optimization and statistic techniques. So it was kind of putting a, an additional layer on top of areas where I was already proficient in. And I think in many cases, it gives me a very solid and good theoretical background that is very critical for realizing how the various algorithms work. In the early days, I was learning both these and the business domain. And that this is something over the years that uh, I'm a very avid uh, believer that you have to be a um, biz acumen expert. You have to understand in very detailed terms how your data is becoming and what are the different business processes, what are the struggles. And when you create a solution for an engineer, for example, someone that has to verify a CPU, what's his daily task? What are his challenges? What is he willing to change? What is he not willing to change? And you have to learn both the business process and the data that's behind it. So over the years, I invested a lot of time in learning that on top of the professional uh, topics, whether it's the software or the algorithms that enable us to bring a solution to production. So in the early days, I was working on uh, various uh, such solutions and I, I really um, enjoyed it. After a while, I developed to become the product manager of such small uh, solutions. And I really like this position because in our organization, a product manager is a person that glues all the professions together. He works with the machine learning engineers on the software aspect, with the data scientists to define both the evaluation criteria and the plan on how to get an idea and a research into production, and also works very closely with our business partners from the organizations at Intel. So I think without our product, both managers and analysts, in many cases, we would have moved much slower to production. I think in many aspects, the way we uh, utilize this position, which is very technical in the way we grow our people and the skill set that we require for them, we can probably solve much more complex problems and move faster to production because they glue everything together. So I was, again, in the domain of the CPU and, and I was uh, managing different projects. And then I went into maternity leave with my first son. So it was a pause very in nice. the career. <laughs> And when I came back, I wanted to uh, try something different. I wanted to work a little bit on in a different business domain. And I was working on uh, IoT types of uh, AI solutions for a while. And in that time, our management decided not to continue and pursue additional solutions around the design space. So the areas where I previously worked kind of was in a standstill or an even a shrinkage process when I was working on IoT. And it was nice. It was a nice time as we're, I was learning a completely new domain and working with uh, different people. But after a few months uh, when I was working there, our management realized that they made a mistake, that not going after helping Intel do its number one job and that designing a good CPU and making sure it's a, with high quality is not a very good strategy because this is an area where we think Intel can get a lot of help from AI and we were not actively pursuing new solutions. So I was giving a very interesting charter. They told me, hey, take uh, like two, three guys and go and reignite this vertical. Find how ah. can we bring high value to Intel uh, design CPUs. And we have no idea for you how you're going to get there. It's not like they gave me a lead or an idea. They just gave me an, a very um, abstract <laughs> task of go and find something to do there because uh, we're sorry that we're not working there anymore. <laughs> So I had like one data scientist, one data analyst, and a part-time uh, software engineer, and I had to go and find the uh, things to do. 
And you need to realize Intel is uh, over 100K people. And in the yeah. design space, I guess many thousand, maybe up to 10K or more engineers working. So idea space and opportunities is huge, but it was, I guess, four years ago or so, or three years ago. And machine learning was still not a very uh, known concept. So I would go and knock on doors and talking with various contexts and people from the various design organizations. And in many cases, they struggle to even understand what I'm after because I was coming to talk to them and asking them, what is your biggest problem? How can I help you? How can I help you with the data-based solutions and trying to find good ideas or good POC seeds so I can grow this vertical? And it was interesting that in some cases, they were so unfamiliar with what is machine learning. I remember one time I was talking to someone very senior and I was asking, how can I help your organization? And he, he said, well, we're struggling with uh, bringing up new guys. Can you help us train the new engineers? And I said, well, that's not kind of machine learning that I want to do. <laughs> and I'm kind of uh, jumping ahead, but just when I go back and, and recall these days and what I experienced these days, that everyone understands what is machine learning and want to do AI and have a, a relatively good grasp of what it can bring them. It's amazing to recall. It's just a few years back. And when I was talking to people, in many cases, they were skeptical or not even willing to go after, or in some cases, simply didn't know what I want from them. This was an interesting and sometimes frustrating process to go all over the place and look for um, ideas. But we ended up, you know, compiling a, a set of POCs and we were very opportunistic. Like any good idea that came, we kind of jumped on board and started uh, at least exploring with it under the assumption that many of these directions will fail. So we did want it to fail fast, but we wanted to really expand the spend because we didn't have a clear strategy of what we wanted to do. So we said, let's try and look for ideas in many different directions. And hopefully mm. we'll eventually end up with something that is very solid and that we can grow in a more consistent and structured way rather than being that opportunist. So the span there was very large. I was working almost in any project lifecycle of designing the CPU. And I remember one of these ideas coming early. And I literally remember the first conversation I had with an engineer that described the idea. He was a verification engineer. And he described me an idea where in many cases, when you want to stress a specific feature of the CPU, you want to test it very well, your existing testing processes are not doing a very good job. And he said that if an algorithm were to change the parameters, the selections of the various tests, eventually it will probably be able to test a specific feature in a much better way than what the regular testing uh, tools were able to do. And uh -huh. his proof was that if you were to sit an engineer to do that manually, though it will take him many hours or many days, he would eventually be able to do that. And I think that notion is something that is going with me ever since that if an engineer can analytically describe something that he would be able to do, and if there is enough ROI, meaning that it's a problem that is worthwhile investing, in many cases, it's a very good candidate for putting AI solution on top of that. That's right. Um, really interesting. Did you have data in the situation of the tests that were run before and whether they were successful? Yeah, so this is part of the reason why I really remember this conversation because everything mm. clicked. The idea was very solid and well-defined. There was data where in many cases before that there wasn't enough data. So I either chose not to go for places where there wasn't enough data or when I chose to go for it, I realized that uh, it will take a very long time to get there. So there was data, there was a good idea. And I also liked the partner. It was someone very passionate and he really believed both in the value and in the feasibility of his idea. This was uh, our probably earliest and more, most notable success. And the interesting thing about this problem is, and this is something that we do in general, whenever we go after a new problem, we always start with a very simple approach. In many cases, we call it like the house model. We will try a very basic algorithm, very basic classification, classical algorithm, just to realize whether this data has enough value in it, enough information, and to assess the complexity of the problem. Even today, with all the advanced tools that we have and the world have, we will always prefer to start in a very simple way and then realize and be able to scope whether it's a very complex problem or, and whether we should go after it. And in some cases, and, and the first such solution was a very good example, the simple approaches work. And I remember we tried the very basic algorithms, naive base and types of correlation and the very basic classification algorithms. And when we had our first live run, we were amazed to see how well the results were. 
So that was um, the very first solution. And as the process of working on it and productizing it, we realized that we found a very good partner. It was the organization that develops the largest part of Intel CPU, the core. It's an Israeli-based organization that we came to realize that is both innovative and passionate about doing innovation and also as people that are um, very strong technically and open-minded. And this is not something that is always trivial to find within a company that is uh, highly focused on execution and on doing things the way they used to do it for uh, decades of years. And this is another realization along the road that we came to realize that if you have a very good partner, you can run faster. And after the success of this very first solution, both on my side and their side, there was a real hunger to go and do much more because it was solving a very nice problem, an important problem, but we knew that there are many more critical problems to how Intel verifies its uh, CPU that can be solved with AI. So at that point, the team uh, grew. It was not just a two or three. It was, uh, I don't even remember, uh, slightly more, uh, eight or so people. And what we decided to do with this organization inside the CPU design is that we will form a working group that will be compiled from my guys and expert engineers from their guys. And we will sit down and do some ideation of what can be done with AI to transform the way Intel verifies its CPUs. And the way we approached it is we didn't ask which AI solutions can we use or which techniques. We actually approached it from the problem domain space. We were looking into the process of CPU validation and we're asking what are the critical tasks that are being made, which tasks are mostly uh, human intensive, mostly compute resources intensive, and which ones are struggling with either quality or efficiency. And for each of those critical processes, we kind of figure out how we can all together replace or enhance with AI solutions. And after that uh, period of time, we ended up with um, quite a large shopping list of ideas for how to do AI for verification. And we kind of have to go and select what to work on. And this was a very critical and tricky point in time. Because I think in many cases, the second solution is even more critical and more success changing than the first one. So we ended up working on a solution that is much more comprehensive in terms of the data it requires. This solution is how can I create a very intelligent list of tests for the regression of the CPU. So like in software, when you validate a CPU product, you want to be able to find all the existing bugs, not just by unit testing and integration testing, but also you want to have a very comprehensive list of regression tests that will end up making sure that there are no bugs left behind. And in CPU, because of the complexity, they end up with a massive list of regression tests. We're talking about many thousands up to 100K tests that are running each and every weekend, utilizing massive amounts of compute. And the amazing thing to realize is that it's a very wasteful process. They have tons amount of legacy. For example, if there was a test even 10 years ago that found a bug, in many cases, no one will have the guts to take it out of the regression list for fear that if you take this one out, this will end up you finding not finding the most critical bug for Intel ever. This is a perfect opportunity for a machine learning algorithm because no human can process that amount of data and bring you a very intelligent information as to which test should be run. And to do that, mm-hmm. uh, we required to collect almost all aspects of the data that existed. And some of these data sources didn't exist to begin with. So this was a process of several months of going back and collecting the data. And usually I would probably not be that patient if I was to go on a new domain, but you have to remember that I already had a relationship with this organization and I had a lot of trust that if we are investing the time and effort, it will be worth it. And I think what also happened during the time is that we uh, more and more formed a joint language with this organization. We taught them a lot of uh, machine learning concepts and we invested a lot of time in learning their various processes and their needs to make sure that they understand what we're saying and that we understand what they're saying. And and it wasn't easy because uh, there are many words that they use and we use in a completely different way. Like when we say signal, we we mean signal in the data and they talk about hardware signal. And when we... We say model, say model. We talk about a machine learning model. They talk about a hardware model. So in many cases, we had to either find an alternative word or just learn to speak in each other's language. 
And that was a process where we collected a lot of data and started to initiate this very comprehensive test selection solution. And there we went in a much broader way. We wanted to go live in various multiple teams at the same time. So a lot of the struggle other than the algorithms were very engineering. We had to go for a very big data type solution. We had to put in place both on our side and on, on the engineering design side and infrastructure for data collection and manipulation. And that took time. I think it took us over six months just to put this uh, solution in place. But we ended up with a very good, solid infrastructure that is utilized to these days for our entire portfolio of solutions. And during the time, as I was mentioning, we had a full list of inventory of solutions that we wanted to pursue. So while we were very much focused on item, on the solution for intelligent test execution management, and we also worked on various different POCs on the side with smaller investment, but still didn't want to just invest the entire team in one solution. And I think when this uh, second solution came live, this is when our partnership was uh, kind of uh, sealed. Maybe you can call it when we uh, married this organization because <laughs> then both of us was fully invested. And I think they came to realize we're not just a one-trick pony and we can start thinking in a much broader and bigger way. So that was the second phase of evolution. And back then, the team was even bigger. We had a, quite a handful of machine engineers and data scientists and data analysts. I was always constantly hiring new people, integrating them, working on uh, new solutions in, in the same time, which is both exciting and challenging because you want to uh, build an organization that you believe is solid and can grow and do more, but also you want to deliver results. And this is always a struggle. Even though we are great believers in on-the-job training, it's still takes a lot of time and effort to integrate so many people while you're working on critical things to production. And after we went live with the second solution, I think we were a little bit spinning with these many ideas and both on our side and our partner side, we were gushing with ideas and every other day something else was uh, come and we kind of opened way too many things in parallel. We were working on many things and when I was looking into the overall results, things were not coming to production quickly enough. So we had to stop at some point and say, hey, we're no longer this uh, opportunistic thing that works on every idea that we think is a very good thing. We have to stop, prioritize, be a little bit more organized and strategized in the way we make the decisions as to what to work on. And we had to let some of the things either completely go or at least put them on hold so we can focus on bringing solutions to production in a more concentrated way rather than distributing the effort all over the place. So it was a good realization. And I think up until today, it's maybe it's uh, something a little bit that uh, is influenced by me that I always want to do everything. So I, I struggle with saying no to ideas that excite me. But it's a very good lesson that if you are too much distributed and you are not focused on what you work on, you end up with uh, not delivering fast enough. And it's uh, also a frustrating experience. So until today, we probably still work on too many things, but not way too many things. So this is probably how it will always be in an area where you have so many exciting ideas coming to you all the time. I guess the next phase of evolution after we kind of organized and strategized is, is that ever since we're kind of in a very good cadence delivering new solutions to production, we now have quite a full portfolio of solutions for verification, whether it's helping to debug or to select which tests to run and create new tests. So it's quite a rich offering that is touching on all aspects of the verification processes for the CPU. And what we currently see is that we kind of have to juggle between bringing up new solutions and new ideas, and the ideas are becoming more and more complex and bold. But also many other design organizations across Intel are seeing the goodness that this specific organization is getting. And we're currently mm. flushed with demand for scaling these solutions and, and implementing them across the company. For some of our solutions, we kind of hit the nail in the head because we had a very good solutions for most critical problems that most teams are in until now face. So it's interesting to see that even though we are like an internal AI organization inside of Intel, our market is quite large. There are hundreds of teams that we can go and work with. And, and I, these days I kind of have to juggle between how can I bring up new solutions and bring our full vision of what can AI do for design while um, scaling these solutions up. And, and it's a very tricky thing to do because in many cases, when you develop the first AI solution, you're not thinking about scale. 
you're just solving a problem at best of what the data brings and what the business partners can tell you. It's mm. just when you work with the second, third, or even fourth different team that you have the true generalization of what such a solution at scale has to be looking to be working like. Yes. How do you pick what to work on? So I can give you both the very uh, school organized answer and the real one or <laughs> at least a uh, part of it. So first of all, from an, an organized perspective, I, I now truly try to balance between R&D and working on new stuff because I really believe that both to keep my team highly engaged and to keep moving forward, we have to always have an incubation of really high-end ideas, both in business terms and in AI terms. I always want to work on high-end stuff. For example, a while back, we really wanted to work on a reinforcement learning thing. So we worked on the other way around. We were looking for where can we use reinforcement learning in the design space. So mm. this is not like the very um, business uh, school uh, official answer, but in, in some cases it works the other way around. We have a technology that we want to utilize. We will never go after a problem that is not important. So I will always, even if I'm very excited about a technology and I want to experiment with that, I will always go and look for a very good match in terms of high criticality in business uh, terms. In others, and these days it's much easier because I really don't have to go and chase anyone. Uh, ideas are kind of flooding towards my way and I'm in many cases saying much more no than yes, unfortunately, even though I would like to work in a much uh, larger scale. We kind of developed both a very good uh, hunch or rule of uh, thumb as to what's a good use case, but also more organized way to assess the ROI and feasibility of a use case. And I mentioned maybe um, a few of these principles. For example, it has to be a very critical business problem that is well articulated. We have to have the data in a good uh, amount and in a, an accessible way. These days, we'll usually not go after problems that the data doesn't exist and you have to go for a few months to collect it because we're simply too busy to wait for uh, data. In that case, maybe we will send our business partner to go and do some work on the data and get back to us once it's in place. It has to be quantifiable in the ability for us to measure, hey, this should we be able to solve it? It will bring a truly high value, whether it's in an actual dollar number or in ability to find bugs or something that we can be able to prioritize it in light of other solutions and have to be excited about it. In many cases, when I sit down and hear a good idea, I literally get a goosebump. And it's not something that you can maybe teach, but uh, I came to realize that when it's a good idea, I usually feel it, that it's a good idea. Even if I go through the due diligence of having the data and having the ROI and having the, the feasibility, the one maybe last thing that I'm currently looking into is the scale. So if it's a very good idea, but I think it will only solve a problem for one specific team, I would usually not go after it because these days I am looking to go for stuff that I can later on scale to many different teams. So that's, that's a, in, in a nutshell, yeah. Maybe um, like a, I can uh, open a side story a few years back, and we were very much focused on verification these days. I always had a bug in a sense that I wanted to put algorithms inside Intel's products because inside the Intel CPU, there are many different heuristics uh, that are defined by humans in, based on, mm -hmm. uh, of course, labs experiments, but those are like frozen heuristics, maybe regressions or things that they learn in the lab for a while, and then they put it inside the CPU. Naturally, when you put something that is frozen inside a CPU that is later on being used by both your grandma that, uh, I don't know, serves, uh, say, Facebook or read the news and your cousin that is uh, the world's uh, largest gamer, you'd probably uh, want them to be much more adaptive and behave differently for different kinds of users. So with that notion or hypothesis, we were kind of shopping, not uh, in a very um, active way, but maybe a little bit more latent way on ideas of what can be done inside the CPU. And as I was mentioning, it was on top of the day job. It was not like something that we were actively pursuing because we were very much focused on verification. But one day, a um, manager from the one of the design organization came to me with a very, very good idea. He wanted to put an algorithm inside the area that he was working that is helping one aspect of the memory uh, data prefetching. And I was talking about Goosebump. I remember it was a 30-minute conversation yeah. during which I was both excited, running in my head um, like a quick wheel of understanding how can I divert resources to go and work for that because this seems like a too exciting offer. And also, how can I justify to my manager that I'm going to work on something completely different and out of scope just because it feels like a very exciting idea. 
I remember I was telling my manager, hey, I'm going to do that. Don't ask me questions on how I'm going to do that. I'll tell you later whether it's work on or not. And we diverted a couple of guys to do that. And moreover, since we didn't have so many free guys, we went and begged for other vertical managers to loan us a few data scientists for a while to go and work for that. I, I was able to persuade them that I have a very large opportunity and they were kind enough to loan me their uh, data scientists for a while. And it was successful. We were able to go and, and improve a CPU performance using this capability. And we came to realize that this is such a good idea that there is no sense in uh, doing it from my vertical. So we mm. kind of very sadly said, okay, take it to a completely new vertical. And even though we, we are very excited about this idea, we realized that if I had to kind of juggle between this and the verification work, there is no chance that it will work. And today, I think it's uh, almost equivalent in size to my vertical. So this wow. is uh, <laughs> where ideas come to. <laughs> so I'm uh, both uh, very excited to see how they uh, succeed and, and also sometimes a little bit sad that uh, I didn't get to go and work with them, but I'm still excited both for uh, our team, for Advanced Analytics and for Intel, that we had the chance to go and work on something so substantial for Intel because putting ML algorithms inside the CPUs is, for me, one of the probably the holy grails of what we can do inside a corporate like in. Very much so. Yeah. And maybe the last step of uh, our evolution that I think is worth mentioning, and I think this is probably very exciting. These days, I was mentioning the strong partnership we're getting from the uh, CPU and development organization. They are now starting to devise how they're going to do like the very next, next generation of CPU. And when they do that, they're so much into AI and realizing the value that it's giving them that together with them, we're doing a complete business process redesign completely from scratch. Wow. Yeah. I'm very excited to be part of this team because I haven't ever done, I don't know how many people got to do something like that, asking where AI can truly make a difference and asking how can we make the business processes in a way that data will be collected and identities will be tagged so that eventually we can put AI all over the place and make the process completely different from scratch. Amazing. That mm -hmm. would be a huge undertaking. It is. In many cases, we're asking ourselves, what are the skill set requires to do that? Whether we just need the verification engineers, we need AI experts, or, or maybe we even need like industrial engineers, experts that know how to do change management, because it's not just about the AI and the verification process. It, it's about how can you completely redesign something that is working in a similar way for decades. Maybe next week we'll talk. I will tell you. I will tell you if we're going on a good direction. It's uh, very interesting to see when you remove a lot of the constraints, how much good ideas and innovation comes across when you take out all these usual constraints and the as-is processes and the existing data that, in many cases, kind of give you a very clear limitation of what you can or can't do. That's amazing. You mentioned the infrastructure that you guys built over that six-month period that is something that you're still using to run your machine learning and AI projects. What does that infrastructure look like? So currently we're working inside Intel. It's an in internal cloud inside Intel because of the sensitivity of the oh, data, yeah. but it's a big data platform. It's a Hadoop infrastructure based. And from our side, it's very scalable, in many cases, very specific team agnostic. So it doesn't have many premises as to what the type of the data, maybe just about the structure that it can get. But also it is built in a way such that any new data set that we have to ingest can be very easily uh, sent to us. This is from a, like a breadth perspective, but mm. from a scale perspective, it's kind of uh, endlessly scalable in terms that I, any team that wants to send data sets to existing solutions can do that very easily. What's interesting to see over the time is that it took us a while to realize what are the reusable components that uh, we have across different solutions. When you uh, look at it in a very abstract way, in almost all of our solutions, we end up having with a, like a learning component and an optimization component, because in many cases, we try to provide them with a solution that is bounded by resources. So it's not just about understanding what are the different parameters or what would be a very good test to run, but also to make a more holistic uh, optimization uh, decision as to what are the overall or the budget that can be utilized to get to the overall goal. And over the time, we realized that there are some components that 
can be reused across different solutions. So for example, we now have a pattern recognition algorithm that is very much data agnostic that can be used for essentially any set of data that is labeled and you want to be able to find patterns for, and it doesn't really care about what is the business context. So mm-hmm. this is an example of one such a service that many different solutions is utilizing. Same goals, for example, an optimization and what we call an optimizer component that different solutions can send a large set of data with constraints and objective function and it can optimize it. And over the time, we're trying to go and do that more and more rather than each and every solution and end-to-end something that is closed up because we see that we end up with a very uh, complex system to maintain and we prefer to reuse as much as possible. It takes work because realize that you have um, an end-to-end solution working for a while and now whether reworking on it and and rewriting it just to have it more generic and and reusable, whether it's worth our time or should we go and work on something new. So we're always kind of balancing the trade-off between making the infrastructure easier to work, easier to maintain and more robust rather than be excited and going and developing new stuff. And this is something that we always juggle and struggle and I'm not sure whether we found the right balance, but we're always very conscious about having this discussion and and asking ourselves whether we should reopen it or just utilize the quick and dirty-ish approach and and develop something end-to-end. That's very deliberate from you in terms of the decision-making. Which way does it usually go? So it depends. A while back, I would probably say that because we still wanted to prove that we have a rich portfolio, we we would probably go and simply put something in production, an MVP, and it's probably a good way to go from an agilic perspective. But I think we're at a tipping point where we have enough confidence that what we want to do is the right roadmap and the right direction. And we will be probably more leaning towards creating um, an organized services rather than just doing a very small MVP. We try to balance between them because we really believe in in the agile form of work. And when we see our solutions working in production, in many cases, we learn so much more than just what we see in the uh, exploration phases uh, behind the scenes. So we do aim to get to production as fast as possible, but we try and do it in the right way and make sure that we won't have to rework each and every code segment that we create. Very nice. Do the other advanced analytics teams that have different verticals, do they build their own infrastructure or is that something that you share? So uh, over the years, it kind of formed in a way that each team has its own platform based on which it creates different solutions. I always ask myself, when you you look at the different verticals, you see a great variance in types of data and types of algorithms that they work on. So for example, the vertical working for sales is very much NLP based and is working around uh, a lot of data coming from the external world, uh, tweets and uh, social media and, and websites. So they're very much focused on NLP, whereas we, for example, may be much more focused on, on optimization and sometimes classical machine learning. Other teams might be more focused on uh, video. So you get a lot of variance and I always wonder whether it's the business domain that got us to be focused on a specific type of data and algorithms or it's a kind of a natural evolution of a professional team that once they become proficient in a domain, they simply go and find the ideas in the same domain because their receptors are very much open to these kind of problems. I personally am very much like an optimization girl, so I end up finding an optimization problem almost in anything I hear. But I I know it's my tendency. That's very nice. What is the understanding about machine learning and AI from the business partners that you're working with? And I wanted to ask you specifically about when they come to your team with problems to solve. Do the business side have a sense of how solvable the problem is for machine learning or AI? How likely it is to be a good fit? for this type of technology? Is that something that they have a good sense of now? Has it been improving over time? How do you see it? So first of all, the evolution was amazing and very quick. I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I saw where AI became a hype. In some cases, almost overnight. When I was uh, just uh, even maybe a year or two years back uh, having a conversation, in most cases, it was very unclear. They were just talking about the problem, maybe suggesting some directions, but with a very shallow understanding, if any, of the machine learning uh, capabilities. 
these days, in many cases, when people come and pitch ideas to us, they can even be people that are now studying towards masters or even taken some Coursera courses. So you have to remember, I work with engineers. So these are very technical mm. guys. And in many cases, they do like to understand what they're pitching and, and even want to do some hands-on work themselves, mm. which I highly encourage because I think it only brings goodness. So it varies. And some of them are coming with a very clear uh, realization. Others uh, are now coming with a massive dreams that are sometimes impractical because they now think hey, I can solve everything. So we're even seeing cases that <laughs> it's an almost um, way too big, too complex. And they imagine that uh, AI can do uh, some kind of magic and solve it within a few months. So we also have to do a lot of set expectations in some cases as to what's a reasonable thing to expect or how much investment and effort would a problem take. And uh, as I mentioned, I do want to go and try and work the harder problems. And I tell my guys, because we are the AI experts, we can't mm. continue and working on a simple problem that now anyone can use a specific tool or an auto ML and, and solve it themselves. Huh. We have to go for the stuff that regular engineers will not be able to solve. And it's hard. Yes. You know, this makes you work on a, on the much harder problems and it's sometimes frustrating. And I see my guys um, one day happy because the algorithm seems to be working well and the other are all <laughs> bummed because nothing is working. <laughs> So it's like a sign of how solvable the problem seems to be today. But I think this is what's exciting, that in order for us to maintain the leadership position of AI that we have, we have to continue running as fast as possible and always stay up to date and always experiment with the most advanced technologies because anything that today seems to us like our day job will probably be commoditized at some point or another and, and in a very rapid pace. And it's up to us to maintain the leadership. Otherwise, we will not have a justification to hold such a large AI organization inside a company because the engineering teams will do it themselves. Very nice. I love that discipline. Well done. How was it coming back to work after being on maternity leave. I wanted to ask you specifically because right now uh, my wife is just going back to work or had just started going back to work after our first child. She's doing a couple of days a week at the moment. And my wife is a doctor and she had a, there was a one day course, which was a refresher course for returning moms into the workforce. And it was refresher of knowledge and skills. And obviously, they got to meet each other and people that are in a similar situation. And they did that before they started going back to work. She found that really beneficial. It's something that I haven't seen in business. And I was wondering whether it's a difficult transition or an easy one. How was it for you when you came back from maternity leave? Yeah, so first of all, I've already done it twice because I have two kids. <laughs> so when I came back from my uh, first son, I was not in the same position as I am today. And, and I was actually, before I left for maternity leave, I kind of closed the role that I was. And I was like a um, free spirit at the time. And I had to negotiate with my managers as to uh, which position I'm going to return to. So it was in, in some ways very um, intimidating and others very exciting because I didn't know what I'm going to go back to. Just I, I was assured that I'm going to go back to something at least as exciting as what I was living. And I have to say that with my first son, at some point I was bored during my maternity leave. So I actually wanted to uh, a little bit shorten my uh, planned uh, leave and I got to do some uh, initial work from home. So it was very gradual uh, my return. And I think this made it much easier when you start thinking again like um, an engineer rather than a mom that uh, just thinks about, I don't know, uh, changing diapers. So yes. the gradual work for me was, was very good. But I have to say that for me, both time, it was very easy to go back because I love what I do and I'm very excited about what I do. And I think it's always the case when you love what you do, even though you have to juggle and you have your regrets and whatnot about not being enough with your kids, if you love what you do, it's always easy to go back to. And I think this is when I manage moms that are coming back from maternity leave, this is something that I try to make sure that they get, that they get to go back to something is exciting. That's from one perspective. The other is that they are allowed to go back very gradually and in a pace mm -hmm. that they can work with. And it's very different from mom to mom. Some like to go back all in, all fiery, because this is how they can distract themselves from missing the baby. And others really want to take their time, start from work for a while and, and gradually go back to the office. And I do, I and my organization try to make sure that we give the flexibility required and the amount of excitement required to make sure that moms go back very easily to work after they are absent for a while. 
Very nice. Yeah, that would definitely ease the transition back in. I wanted to ask you about your views on diversity in analytics teams. And that can be obviously gender diversity, racial diversity, uh, diversity in general. What are your views on the current state of diversity in analytics teams? Yeah, how do you see it? So I'm very happy you asked, even though we haven't discussed it before, because this is a topic that is very close to my heart. There is a large organization called Women in Big Data. It's a global organization that uh, its aim is to increase the representation of women in the data-related uh, domains. And we've just recently, a few months ago, initiated the Israeli chapter. So I'm one of the leaders of the very Israeli nice. chapter of uh, Women in Big Data. So, yeah, even though we didn't realize, you hit a, a very close-to-home question. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah. So I do think that women are very good power and underutilized power in the data domain. I think in many cases, women has a great fit to working in the data domains because they are well-rounded and have a very great talent in the various data aspects. But in some cases, they either don't select to go for these domains or struggle in, in finding the right positions and making the right judgment calls as to which right data position they should have. And this is something that we're currently trying to actively change, whether it's by educating on the different data positions and what kind of career and education decisions you should make in order to be successful and to be able to be hired for uh, various positions. Though I have to say in my team, and I was, because of this women in big data, I was currently looking into the statistics. My team has uh, exactly 50-50 women and, and uh, what? men. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it really wasn't deliberate. And, and I was trying to think what we're doing to get to that. And, and we're, in my opinion, we're not actively pursuing this equality. It's not like we will prefer a women or a female candidate over a male candidate. But I think, first of all, because it's so natural and almost 50% of our management is women, then mm, um, nice. it's women that hire other women. And I think also when uh, candidates are being interviewed by women, in many cases, they would probably prefer this company because it seems to them a better company. So it's kind of once you reach a critical tipping point, uh, you have a momentum and you are usually able to either grow or at least retain the uh, percentage of women. And I think it's doing us all very good justice because it creates a very good and diverse workforce. Actually, one of my guys, I just hired a product manager from uh, outside uh, my team and he was just saying part of the things that I'm learning other than AI and your domain and whatever is how to work with women because in my previous role, I only had men and it's starting from small stuff like people are uh, commenting and complimenting on my new shirt that I never <laughs> realized that co-workers <laughs> even pay attention. And up to the dynamics of working in a, on a, a diverse team, and I think overall, it's a much better workplace. It's a much well-rounded, more opinions, more views. And I think, hum I'm going to say it's humble. It's part of the reasons why it's a very good place to work in. Amazing. Well done for getting to that 50-50 split. Uh, so well done. I wanted to ask you, with everything that you've done, what are you most proud of? Other than my kids, you mean? <laughs> yes. I'm actually very proud, I, I think, of where we got to and the partnership that we formed with the engineering team that we're working with, because I think it's a very distinguished combination that is not available in many other organizations, that two organizations have learned to work together so well and are forming a um, joint. It's a commitment. Okay, When you look into such a large transformation, you essentially commit to one another, and it's very exciting to be able to bring a small idea, one opportunistic idea coming from one engineer to a place where an entire organization, and I do think it's going to be an industry leadership in type of how a verification is being made, should we be successful with all the ideas that we have. And it's exciting to be in a place where you're part of a, a revolution in an atmosphere and a, a partnership that you think is a very win-win and beneficial way to get AI and business to work together towards getting into large goals. So true. You're so passionate about the impact that this field can have. What excites you most about this space? When I look at AI, in many cases, I, I look at it as something that kind of breaks traditional trade-offs or premises of how work is being done. So Intel, like most companies around the world, is facing a very intricate 
competition. And as mm. part of this competition, you kind of have to do much more with much less. And when yeah. you have to do much more with much less, you have to ask yourself, what can I do significantly different to enable breaking a paradigm where you used to invest more to get more? And we're kind of trying to do mm. the opposite. And I think AI is probably the only way that you can break this trade-off. I, I don't know of any other technology or method that uh, available these days that can enable that. And I think overall, it will make our world world and work much better. I, in many cases, I give uh, like AI talks inside of Intel and people are always worried about uh, their job and will robots take them and whatever. And when I'm asked, I always say, well, I think some of your jobs or your job aspect will be eliminated. That's true. We don't have to go around it. But I think that your job is going to get that much more exciting because as a, a knowledge engineers, you're not going to do over and over and over the same thing that a machine can do. You're going to become the parts of the work that is more creative, that is more human-centric that a machine, at least for the foreseeable future, can be doing. So I think we, we're making people's lives more exciting, not more redundant or uh, useless, like some people might be worried about. So that's just my view, and I'm excited to be part of such a revolution. I love it. That is fantastic. This has been such a pleasure. I only have one last question for you. I wanted to ask you for a piece of advice that you would like to give to the listeners, something that maybe can help them in their career or in their life in general? What's something that you would like to leave them with? So I would say a few things. First of all, learn your theory, know your theory well. It's not just about, in general terms, understanding how the algorithms work or why it works. I think if you want to be a successful data scientist or even a manager in this domain, the deeper the understanding of how things are working and why things are working and what's the current trends of the theory and the boundaries and where is it all going will just make you a better both practitioner and leader. The second thing, and this is because I'm very much focused on, on solving real-world problems, is that you always have to connect the theoretical algorithm or problem with the business that it's trying to solve. Like, don't go after precision or recall. Go after finding more software bugs. Go after creating more accounts for sales. If you talk in the business terms, in most cases, you will solve the right problems rather than when you are uh, like working in the back office as a data scientist and just making sure you bring the most precise algorithm. In many cases, this will not the thing that will bring the problem to solution or get you to the revolution that you're after with these uh, solutions. Nafar, that is a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your amazing progress, all your learnings. I am so impressed with everything that you've uh, been able to do in such a short amount of time. It speaks volumes to your focus, your strategic thinking, the way that you build teams. The impact that you're having is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing it all with us. Thank you for listening. It was a pleasure. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.